This is Fragmented Reality, a digital bulletin podcast designed to bust the buzzwords that dominate enterprise technology. My name is Ben Mouncer, and for this episode I took my clutch of eggs, each containing an industry buzzword, to VMworld Europe in Barcelona, where I met Duncan Epping, a chief technologist for VMware. Okay, Duncan, shall we um, crack open our first egg? So if you'd like to dip your hand into the bag. Sure, sounds good to me. And we'll see what hatches from this particular... Let's see. It's gone for a green one to, to start us off with. Silos. Silos. Okay, so we're talking about organizational silos rather than data silos. So from your experience of working in technology companies, first of all, are silos still a, a common problem that you come across? It's, it's very much still a common uh, problem. Yeah. I started working with VMware uh, close to 12 years ago. Yeah. And it was a problem 12 years ago when we started virtualizing physical assets. And I think ever since it has been a, a, a problem. And I would say that when we introduced the SDDC, that for the majority of customers was the first real reason to start breaking down um, those silos. Because with the software-defined data center, now all of a sudden the networking team, the storage team, the compute team, the virtualization layer, they all need to start working uh, together as a single as a single team, basically. So I think for us, um, it's been more or less natural for VMware to start, you know, try working on breaking down those those silos, but it's it's one of the most complicated things. Yeah, how much of a challenge is it? Because they do tend to naturally just develop, don't they? When you're on that development pathway, silos tend to tend to happen. Yeah, and I, th- I think for a lot of organizations, it's also natural to have those silos in place, right? You have three guys working mainly on switches, so they are a networking team. Then you have four guys working on the storage array. Well, they get a different room. Right, because they all focus on the same thing. So I understand why those silos were created. And back in the days, um, when we were just doing virtualization, well, you would request the VLAN from a networking perspective, you would need a data store, and then the virtualization guy would just start deploying you know, five or 10 or 15, 20 VMs. Nowadays, when we start seeing container-based workloads, uh, we're starting to see customers you know, provisioning 1,000 VMs on a daily basis. The requirements are completely different. You can't just request one data store and just wait for stuff to happen over a course of six weeks, right? People need to be more agile, they need to be more flexible. So for us, you know, it has been challenging in a shape or form, but it's mainly because I think uh, people don't like change in general, and especially IT people, because with every single change you introduce in an environment, there's a risk associated with it. So they're kind of risk adverse. However, when we start explaining what the benefit is, when you have these teams that actually work jointly on these different uh, solutions, they can offer new solutions to their uh, customers, right? Because every single customer we have, they have their own customers internally. And what they started to see over the last years is that their customers started to look at other solutions out there, things like you know native AWS or Google Cloud offerings. Now, the challenge with that, of course, was that they weren't managing those systems, they weren't maintaining those systems, they weren't properly secured, they weren't following any of the uh, compliance or regulations guidelines, for instance, and the data wasn't secured. So they tried to bring that back into uh, their own data centers, and the only way you can do that is by offering a similar agile solution. And the only way you can do that is you know, by combining those teams into a single larger a team and actually have pe- people sitting next to each other and understanding what the challenges are and how you can solve some of those challenges. Have you experienced an environment where uh, an environment that's free of silos and works really well or is, is, are there always challenges in this area do you think? Well I think that today there are multiple uh, larger customers that are more or less at least from an infrastructure perspective free of silos. Mm-hmm. Right? There are still some 
form of silos in the environment because what you'll typically end up seeing, and I think that is the next step, uh, what customers have done is they, they try to break down the silos from an infrastructure perspective, have all of those teams working you know, alongst each other and try to figure out what you know, each one of them are doing. But now the challenge they have is, okay, they have this new DevOps team or they have this development team that needs to have you know, certain, uh, they, they have certain requirements that need to be fulfilled. And they, they typically sit in a completely different area of the, the building even, right? Yeah. The developers are not sitting next to the infrastructure guys. Yet, the infrastructure guys are facilitating those developers. So it's really important for them to have that regular conversation, but they don't speak the same language. And I think that is also something that we as VMware are trying to focus on. Um, today at the keynote, there were a lot of announcements, and yesterday as well, around uh, uh, Tenzu and Project Pacific. And I think what struck me is that they, when they were talking about those initiatives, they were mainly talking about enabling the developer. But I think it's also uh, uh, about providing uh, the administrator, the tools to talk the same language as the developer, because that's the challenge that they have. The developer comes to you and says, I have this container running MongoDB, and it's doing you know X, Y, and Z, and I have this particular problem. Now the infrastructure guy looks at his infrastructure and he sees a couple of VMs, and he doesn't know what MongoDB is or what Cassandra is, and he now ne needs to try to figure out what is happening and why it's happening. And I think one of the major roles that we are playing as a company is you know, trying to enable the administrators to speak the same language and understand what the developers are doing and why they have certain, certain require requirements. And at the same time, provide those developers the agile and flexible deployment that they need. So you know, public APIs available for the developers where they can start deploying their own applications directly on top of our environment. So I think those things are, are, are key and are, are already happening today. It's really interesting and it's a really complex topic as you've illustrated there, but certainly something to keep, uh, keep, keep an eye on. Should we go for another egg? Should we uh, sure, see, what, see what is next from the nest of buzzwords? Uh, let's try a yellow one. Yellow, okay. Unfurling it now, what have we got? Customer centricity. Customer centricity. Okay, this is, this is always an interesting one. Do you think um, when big organizations, and I'm sure VMware has you know, spoken in these terms before, when big organizations talk about putting the customer at the center of everything and you know, the customer is always right, do you, think that is a, do you think that is a buzzword or do you think that is a genuine business strategy and is an achievable thing for companies like VMware to do? Well, I think there's a couple of aspects, of course, right? From a support uh, perspective, when it comes to supporting your customers in terms of using the product, in terms of designing the product, you name it. I think you know, customer centricity is really important. Uh, if you look at VMware as a company, uh, I think it's fair to say that for a while we've struggled. Uh, we were kind of trying to figure out ourselves how customers were using the product, why they were using the product, and what the benefits were uh, for them over well, the last... Why do you think that was so much of a struggle? Why do you think that was a hard thing to well, do? I think it's, it's, it's part of uh, the growth of the company itself, right? We went from a company of, with you know, a handful of developers to a company of 20,000 20, plus uh, people uh, literally over a decade, right? When I joined VMware uh, 12 years ago, there were like 2,000 people. Now there are or 3,000 people. Now there are you know, 28,000 or close yeah. to 28,000. So. It just grew at a, at a insane pace. And I think when you grow at that pace, at some point in time, it's very difficult to have, keep on having the same level of conversations with customers and to keep, well, of course you try to keep them central, but you can't have the same level of conversation anymore. You need to focus on particular areas, which makes it challenging and may make it appear to certain customers that 
you don't have them as the center of your attention yet you do have them at the center of attention, but when you have 500,000 customers, you can't talk to all of them. Yeah. So I do think it's really important. Um, and I think it's a big focus for us, but I think it's a big focus for enterprise and consumer uh, companies in, in general, mm -hmm. uh, to be honest. And you need to. The, the, the biggest challenge I think everyone faces today is that there's so much competition in this world. If you don't listen to your customers, someone else uh, will, mm -hmm. and someone else will take over. And I think the reason that we as VMware have been successful is first of all we had a unique product we listened very carefully to what customers were looking for and yes we may not have always hit that mark uh, but you know you, like I said you can't talk to all customers of all sizes and satisfy them all but we have been trying really hard and if you look at what we've been doing today what we've announced uh, over the last uh, couple of days, but also what we've done over the past years, right? We've made a lot of improvements in our platform to ensure that customers are happy and will remain happy in the, uh, the foreseeing future. So I think what you're trying to say is, obviously customers are central, but to base everything around the needs and desires of the customers isn't really possible, is it? You have to, you have to look at other things as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. And you need to, at some point, you need to make a decision, right? Yeah. If you look at VMware, uh, we have small customers, SMB customers, with two or three virtual hosts, but we also have large enterprise customers with more than 10,000 hosts, right? Some of them are, are hitting uh, 100,000 hosts. Now, surely the enterprise guy with 100,000 hosts has different challenges than the guy with two or three hosts. Can we cater for both? Well, sometimes that is uh, challenging. Of course, we try to, but you may not always, uh, always succeed. And I think key for every single uh, person working for a company that is trying to have the customer at you know the center of everything is trying to fi figure out what that middle ground is. Mm -hmm. Can I cater for both the larger customer as well of, uh, as the smaller uh, customer? It's challenging, but you will need to because there's too much competition not to. Fantastic. Should we have our third egg? Sure. We've had a pink one, did we? And a yellow one? No, no, green and yellow. Green. Yes, let's, pink one. let's try the pink. What treat is going to emerge? Future of work. <laughs> Future of work, how, how would you define future of work? What, would, what comes to your mind when you hear that phrase? I think it's an interesting uh, one because I was just talking to our um, augmented reality and virtual reality team. Okay. And I just had a conversation about machine learning and artificial inte intelligence. And I, I, I do think they you know, fit perfectly with the, uh, the future of work, especially when you think about those new technologies and how, to how they can potentially uh, change the way that we are doing business or people will have to work in the future. Just to give an example, I was just talking to the, uh, the, the VR and the AR team and they were explaining to me um, how they were building a platform that allows uh, larger corporations that need to train their employees to leverage virtual, uh, virtual reality to do that. So not only will they be using virtual reality to train their employees, so they have wear the, the, those virtual reality goggles and they can actually go through the exercise or for instance uh, assembling a server, but at the same time they could also use augmented reality and wear those glasses in a factory while they are assembling and get tips and hints how they could do certain tasks faster. Also, what they potentially could do is analyze the data that comes from all of those different glasses and try to figure out, hey, why is Joan twice as fast as Bill, for instance, right? All of those different things are, are, are possible and may change the way that we will work in the future. What impact do you think that will have on people? So you've, you've explained well the technology development that, that will impact the future of work, but obviously the, the workforce is changing as well, isn't it? And the way people work is changing. Yeah, it's, that's, that's an interesting question. And I actually had a conversation with someone recently because when you, when you look at ML and AI, and it's being brought up by people, I think everyone is nervous about their job. And 
I think it's fair to say that when you look at you know the, these factory lines, more and more is being automated, but that has, that has been happening for for centuries, right? I mean, a hundred years ago, we had a person walking around in the streets, just lighting up the, the, those those street lights every single evening. Now it happens automatically. It's yeah. not like that person completely disappeared. Well, the role disappeared, but there's another new roles emerged. A new role they? that yeah. emerged, right? Yeah. And I think that's going to happen. You know, when it comes to all of these uh, enhancements and uh, advancements in terms of technology as well. Other roles will, will pop, pop up, other opportunities will pop up. And we've seen the same thing closer to home, right, in the data center. When we started virtualizing storage, the storage administrator said, okay, what should I be doing now? Same with networking. When we virtualize networking, what we should, should we be doing now when, the, when we have a virtualized network solution? You know, the virtualization team takes care of it. Well, it just doesn't mean that you're not needed anymore. It just means you may need to shift over into a different direction. You have the opportunity to learn new technology, uh, to get into a different area and focus on something else. So I think you know many more roles and jobs and opportunities will be created as a result of the technology that we are building than will disappear over time. Do you think the route to that future is going to be a bit of a challenging one though? Because obviously the skills that people need probably aren't in place yet and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a rocky road, isn't it, to get to a point where you've got a future workforce that is skilled in the technologies that uh, are in place. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. Um, I also think that that is something that has happened over the past 20 years. Uh, when I started my career, there were hardly any IT administrators out there. I was probably one of the first people that had a, um, um, an education that had something to do with, uh, with IT. Right? Before that, it was all people focusing on factory automation and those types of things. And then all of a sudden, we need to have this this person called IT administrator, and it didn't exist. So we had people, you know, that came from an administrative uh, background, and you know, they had some affinity with working with computers. So they became the administrator within that environment. And I think the same is going to happen with these new types of technologies. We're always starting to see new roles like data, a data scientists, for in, for instance. They didn't exist five years ago, and you know, these are people that have an affinity with with data, with numbers that are curious and may have a scientific background, so they gravitate towards towards that. So uh, you know, I, I definitely think it's going to be a challenge, and I think for the educational system, it's going to be a biggest challenge to try to figure out what they should be catering for, because they're always two, three steps behind, right? When when I went to school, they, they, they taught me uh, Pascal programming, right? As soon as I left school, no one used it anymore, right? <laughs> but you know, they, it's not about learning a specific language, it's about learning frameworks, learning you know, how to work with certain technologies, certain frameworks, certain methodologies. It's, uh, you know, usually you can apply it to other types of uh, responsibilities as well. Yeah, really interesting and really important stuff. So um, yeah, let's move on to number four. Let's have another egg. Let's take the blue one. Blue egg is cracked open. Data analytics. Okay, we kind of touched on it there. I guess the, the starting point here is how pervasive are data strategies now in across the enterprise? I mean, data is the new oil is the phrase that is overused, definitely, but data is so crucial now, isn't it? Too? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's crucial for a lot of uh, companies, not, even the, not, not just even the enterprise companies. I think in general, data, data is crucial. The biggest challenge, though, I think customers are having today is trying to figure out what to do with the data set they, that, they, uh, that they are gathering. Uh, everyone has been talking about big data, data lakes, um, distributed apps, uh, data analytics, but 
to a certain extent, there is a very uh, low number of customers that actually understands what to do with the data and the value that they can have from that data. If you look at the retail space, for instance, what, what some of them, what, what some of those companies are, are doing, that is something that is very interesting. Uh, some of the retailers, for instance, they have cameras throughout the store and tracking the behavior of customers mm -hmm. so that they can position uh, their products in a specific way so that it increases the chance of a particular product being bought in the store. They're also tracking customers to see if you know customers are potentially stealing uh, products, for instance. So there are different ways of you know doing something smart uh, with data. I just had a conversation, which I think is interesting, with a company that uh, works on autonomous vehicles. Now you can imagine that the data that they are uh, gathering and that they need to crunch and need to analyze is, is ridiculous. They were talking about three gigabyte worth of data per second that a single car is producing. Yeah. That is ridiculous. It's, it's almost impossible to, to analyze it, let alone you know, ship it and, 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 and store it somewhere. Do you think it's the, the size of the data sets which is the main sort of barrier to the point that you mentioned? You know, people aren't able to yet make the most of the data available to them. Yeah, I think that's definitely a challenge. And I think um, for a lot of the IT teams, I spoke to a customer yesterday and they said the same thing. They, they were talking about IoT and they had the massive data sets that, uh, that they had, the sampling that they had. But I think the one thing that people tend to forget about is when you, for instance, talk about IoT or you talk about these larger data sets, is that a lot of the data is actually crunched locally. If you look at an autonomous vehicle, right, probably 85, 90% of the data is uh, being used locally to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So within the car or within the IoT device and is then being discarded. There's a limited data set being sent over to a main a central uh, location. If you would need to ship all of the data that is being produced by a single device, it's probably going to take you know longer than um, uh, it's going to take too long to ship the data before the new data set is or, or the data set new data set is going to be available before you have shipped the uh, the, the most recent data. So. I don't think that is a viable, uh, a viable option in most cases. So what we've seen as VMware is that when we talk to customers about things like data analytics, uh, IoT, is we try to classify things. Are we talking about Internet of Things devices? Are we talking about the edge location where we gather some of the data? Or are we talking about the central data center that is now gathering all of, or, or a subset of the data from all of the different edge locations, which has, holds all of the data from all of the different IoT devices, and are we crunching that in a central location? So there are different, different layers that uh, come into play, which also makes it very, I think it's a very challenging uh, discussion, discussion to have. Do you think um, the phrase data analytics is thrown around maybe a bit too much by companies who think you know, that they are, they, are, they are using data to their advantage, but you know, haven't really got an, an actual strategy in place to do it. Yeah, for sure, and I think it's it's not only by companies that um, sell certain products and claim they use data analytics to sell those products. It's also being thrown around a lot by the different vendors who claim to have a solution for your data analytics uh, problem. While in reality, you know, they're more doing you know data management or focusing on compliance and not really doing analytics on the data itself. Yeah. Right. There's a difference between trying to figure out if a particular string is being stored within the data, like a credit card number, or actually analyzing the data and trying to come up with new business logic or new opportunities for your business to develop products. I think those are two distinct things, and everyone actually piled them onto a single right, yeah. solution or problem, and, and, and everyone 
apparently has the solution for a problem that the customers have, but I don't think that is the case. Okay. Really interesting topic. Should we move on to another egg? Egg sure. number five. <laughs> it's gone green. Augmented reality. Augmented reality, okay. Now, I think there's been a lot of hype around augmented reality, virtual reality, the mixed reality technologies for a number of years now. Do you think there's a place in, in enterprise at scale for technologies like AR, or are they more focused towards the consumer market? Yeah, I definitely think there's a, there is a space uh, at, at the... Um, uh, you mentioned earlier about you had, you're having conversations with your team. Yeah, exactly. We area. actually have a team here that purely focuses on uh, AR and VR, and they have a, uh, it's called, called the Spatial computing, uh, computing Zone. And they, they primarily discuss how they are using uh, spatial computing, so AR and VR, uh, for usually educational purposes. So we have a couple of larger uh, customers that are looking to figure out how they can train their workforce. Um, you know, it could be for the assembly of a server, but in some cases may also be to train the workforce on trying to figure out how to uh, you know, troubleshoot a car engine or maybe even a jet engine, right? You can imagine that if you have people working on a jet engine and they make certain mistakes, that the mistake is going to be extremely uh, costly and, and riskful as well, of course, right? There's a risk associated with the mistakes that are being made. So they use these types of technologies to ensure that they can train uh, their engineers, not only on the current version, but potentially also on the next version or the version after that that people are working uh, working on. So I do think there's a real a real play here. I, I also do th still think that we're at the start of it. I mean, when I first look at uh, virtual uh, virtual reality, it's probably 1996, mm -hmm. and people said, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it took at least another 20 years, <laughs> right, before we actually got started, and that mainly had to do with the lack of compute power, um, the technology that we had back then from a resolution perspective, usability perspective, wasn't really at the level that people expected it to be, right? Yeah. It, it was a, such a low resolution that you would get motion sick within within three minutes. Uh, these days we have c people walking around with a headset, you know, for two, three hours without getting uh, motion, motion sick. So I do think there's definitely a place in it. What it will be is something that you know, I think still needs to be be figured out. But I, I guess cost is a big problem as well, isn't it? It's an expensive technology. Right now, uh, depending, of course, on you know the technology they are buying, can be expensive. Yeah. Some of the uh, the headsets, you know, go for as little as you know two three hundred euros. If you look at the Oculus uh, solution, for instance, they have something that starts at three hundred euros. But there are also headsets that will cost two and a half thousand. Uh, and, the, and it's not just the headset where it stops, and I think that's what people tend to forget. You also need to have an application. Mm -hmm. um, if, it needs to, if you have a business uh, uh, solution for it, then there's typically a lot more involved than playing games, right? You can buy a game for $5, mm -hmm. but if you need to have this jet engine uh, represented in a 3D form within your application, well, there's a lot more involved with it, right? You yeah. need to have the, 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 the cat designs, then that needs to be transformed into an AR, uh, VR application, and then you need to have, figure out you know, how the, the engineer can actually use it in a, in a specific way as well. So there are a lot of different things uh, involved. I can tell you that a lot of companies are heavily investing it. If you, if you look at Facebook, for instance, there's a reason they bought Oculus. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the investment that they are doing from a hardware and software perspective, it's ridiculous. Uh, but also companies like HTC, you name it, there are many different vendors in its this, this space and they are in this space for a reason. They are not here just to spend money. And I, what, what timeline would you put on it? Do you think it's, there's a turning point coming soon and we're going to see 
Yeah, I, I think it's... Um, if you look at what's happening right now from a gaming perspective, just to start with that, from a consumer standpoint, we kind of reached that point where, you know, people can afford it. Two years ago, it was still relatively expensive, you know, $1,500, $2,000. Now we can start at two, dollars $300, which usually means that we'll start seeing people getting interested in the technology from an enterprise perspective and trying to figure out how they can apply it to their own workforce. And that is something that we are now starting to see customers getting interested in. I suspect two to three years that it will be more common. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the real adoption, you know, may maybe five years uh, from now. But with these types of technologies, it's always difficult to predict, because depending on what one of the larger vendors ends up doing and implementing, and how easy they will make it to develop applications, mm-hmm. it could just explode literally overnight. We, we've seen that with some of the other technologies, right? No one expects anything from it. Uh, they, they create an SDK, they create an API, make it really easy for developers to develop something. And before you know the boom, it's just like million, millions of people are using it. Yeah, so it can happen just like that, can it? It can happen really fast. Do you enjoy using AR technology, Dunk? Is that something you enjoy well, using on, uh, on a personal level? Exactly, it's uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I, I used to play a lot of games in the yeah. past. I, I like a lot of the classic uh, games, so I have no a time for that now. Uh, <laughs> I don't have a lot of time for it, but <laughs> when I have time, actually, I have two arcade machines at home. Yeah. And I played the arcades, I played the older uh, games, but when I saw the uh, the first couple of headsets, that is definitely something that interested me. I'm like, I need to have one of those headsets just <laughs> to figure out, you know, just to figure out how it works, what it does, and I do get motion sick fairly fast, so yeah. I need to be very careful with it. But uh, I have kids as well, so I'm pretty sure they would appreciate me yeah. buying one of those sets. It's certainly a really accessible and fun thing to um, have a play around with, isn't for it? For sure. Duncan, thanks very much for speaking to us today. I hope you enjoyed the chat. No problem, my pleasure. It was great. Speak to you soon. Thank thanks. You. Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. Subscribe now at digitalbullet.in.